Welcome to CCO Podcast, calling college students to serve Jesus Christ with their entire lives. Thanks so much for the kind introduction and very good to be with all of you here today. I know it's a, it's a strange time, strange to be uh, joining each other on Zoom from wherever we are as opposed to being in the room together. I've always uh, loved coming to Pittsburgh this time of the year, not for the weather, but for Jubilee. It's always such an energizing time for me, and I love just being around uh, everyone who's participating, and uh, particularly the honor it's been to host a workshop around this idea of redemptive entrepreneurship, which I've been able to do the last couple of years, and to connect with a lot of people that are interested. And I know many of you, uh, chances are, if you're you know attending this breakout amidst all of the other great opportunities for you to be a part of one of the other ones, I I myself made a list of about seven others that I would have uh, really enjoyed to be in attendance uh, with uh, right now. So thanks for being here. And hopefully that means you resonate with entrepreneurship at some level and we get to talk a little bit more about that. So what I'm going to do is kind of uh, go through a, a presentation that I've prepared for this and um, and then just do a lot of Q&A, frankly. I think one of the great parts about the one of the great parts about Zoom is it allows us to actually be a little bit more connected in the in a personal setting like this. So um, we'll uh, we'll do that in just a little bit here. Um, so I'm going to share my screen here and get a little presentation going. Um, hopefully, uh, you all have had a chance to be a part of some of the uh, earlier sessions that were part of the the journey of Jubilee. And one of the things I really like about it is this idea that we all go through um, or that that throughout Jubilee, normally on the full weekend, we go through the the narrative, the full gospel narrative of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And of course, as uh, John Tyson just talked about, um, that we are in the fall. And of course, I always uh, like to joke that the TLDR implications of the fall is that the world is broken and we need help best summarized in one of all of our favorite memes. Uh, this is fine as everything is burning up around us. And uh, that just has uh, this this meme has been around for a number of years and it's always been funny. Uh, it has felt more funny because of how painfully true it is in the past year in ways that all of us have experienced in different ways. But, you know, when we look back at the what where we are in the grand gospel narrative, we're in what the theologians call the arty, but not yet, right? We know we're between the fall. We're not, we are literally between in the arty, but not yet during our journey of Jubilee this year, um, in between the session on the fall and the one on redemption and on um, the talk on restoration, which we're we're all groaning, right? In, in in the Bible, it talks about creation groans and cries out for uh, restoration and just please, please, please in ways that I think all of us have groaned in the last year. Uh, we've joined creation and groaning, crying out, please, please bring redemption. Jesus, please come bring healing, bring restoration. Um, and so our culture is there and it has been there for a long time. And we are there uh, in our world. We are there in Jubilee here. And uh, we can apply this to entrepreneurship because when we make things in the world, uh, Ashley, I thought, did a wonderful job in the first session talking about this idea that there are kind of a blank canvas 
uh, or that, that there's like a blank canvas that is our lives. And there's a blank canvas on which we can create things that go out into the world. And what we make actually makes a difference in the world. Jubilee does such a great job of demonstrating that. What we make matters. It, it shapes and creates the world and the society that we inhabit. It's whether it's the media that we consume or it is uh, the technology that we use to connect or uh, things that are used for not great purposes, right? Uh, and, and what's behind all those people that create things? I think that entrepreneurs are ultimately behind the people that create the things. And so um, that doesn't mean that entrepreneurs have a higher calling per se, but I do think that entrepreneurs have more responsibility, a higher responsibility, because what we make actually goes out to shape the world around us. And we're going to talk quite a bit about that today. We just think about this as an example. This is Times Square. I live in New York City in Manhattan. This is actually only a, a, about a mile and a half from my apartment. The chaos of Times Square, where the tourists love to go. By the way, it doesn't look anything like this right now, right? It's just completely empty because of the pandemic signs of our times. But this is uh, taken a couple of years ago. Um, and this is kind of iconic Times Square. But what do we see here? We say a lot of creation. We see Moreover, it's not just the products and services that are being advertised here, but it's actually also the messages that are coming at us through all the advertising, because advertising is also uh, something that entrepreneurs invented and created. And uh, and there's advertising agencies and there's technology to uh, produce the advertisements and then technology that puts those advertisements on those billboards or on our phones, right? So all of that is kind of made by entrepreneurs. And it's not just the product. It's actually, what is the product saying? A couple of years ago, the New Yorker put this cartoon out just kind of making in jest this idea that Times Square is actually not about the ads. It's about all of these other messages. You're you're uh, hungry, you're thirsty, but you're also too fat and you're too ugly. And it's all being advertised by McDonald's, which of course can uh, solve that problem of hunger and thirst for us, but it's also probably not great for us, right? And so uh, those are essentially billboards. And Ashley talked this morning about this idea of canvases and billboards and things that we make in the world, actually, uh, they do things. They shape the culture and the society around us. And so the idea that we often uh, kind of toy around with that practice, and, and I say this, this is an idea. This is not fact. This is an idea. Um, and, and the idea that we propose is that the future of culture depends largely on the worldview of the entrepreneurs, what they make and how they decide to make it. What does that mean for us as Christians? Well, you all know the calling of of us as Christians is to step into the moment to join God in creating things in the world. And so rather than us just simply critiquing the things that have been made or being upset, being angry about the the way that society is or problems in our world, uh, one of the great things we can do as entrepreneurs who are motivated by our faith is that we can step into this moment and we can create billboards that tell different stories. We can create products and services and organizations and companies that actually uh, ever so slightly bend the story toward redemption rather than bending the story toward the fall. So that's a big idea. The future of culture depends largely on the worldview of entrepreneurs 
what they make and how they make it. So now let's talk about implications of the fall on our work. Uh, this is uh, kind of, I want to introduce you and unpack, introduce you over time to what we call the redemptive frame in our work at Praxis, working with entrepreneurs all over the world. Uh, this is, uh, the, the first, we'll start with the exploitative. And the exploitative, of course, is an implication of the fall, right? We know that there's a lot of uh, sort of exploitation, unfortunately, that happens in the world. But the exploitative, they kind of have a narrative around winning. This is prevailing, getting ours, taking advantage, extracting value. This is I win and you lose. It's self-centeredness as a system of taking advantage of other. And uh, many of you, as you even hear these words put together in the way that they are, you perhaps are thinking of ways that maybe you've been exploited, um, be it a brand or a service or a product or a company, maybe you felt on the receiving end of exploitation and that's not good. It's not fun. Um, but, um, and, and here's one example of an entrepreneur that has created something that I think has some exploitative effects in the world. This is a, an entrepreneur who was convinced that uh, they basically convinced that everyone should be able to get whatever they want and if you're married and you aren't in a good relationship or you, you're not wanting to be a part of that relationship and you want to have an affair, this person said, I want to make it easier for people to have affairs. And that's the problem that they're going to solve. People who want to have affairs actually have a hard time. How do you find another person who wants to have an affair? And so they basically created a marketplace called Ashley Madison, where people who want to have affairs can go on and meet one another and then arrange, decide if they want to meet up and arrange to perhaps uh, go forward with the deed. Uh, of course, not everybody that goes on the site does it, but the point is that somebody decided to use their creative capacity to create a marketplace for essentially what we would call, and John Tyson talked about as, you know, frankly, sin. Uh, just call it what it is, right? Um and not great, right? So that's that's like one way of thinking about exploitation in the world. And uh, let me just double click on that really quick because the exploitation, it, it's interesting, right? One way to think about the way that this exploits people is uh, marriage is hard, right? <laughs> You've probably all heard that by now. Marriage is hard. I just actually got married myself a couple of months ago. But in my, and, and I'm in my late 30s, so I was married a little bit later in life. But one of the things that all of my friends who got married in their 20s told me as I was in my 30s, they were like, don't rush to get married. It's really hard. Marriage is so hard. And there's just like, you know, broken marriages. We hear about it all the time. And so marriage is hard. And what, in, in one way, this, what it does, this technology does, it could take somebody who's having a hard time in their marriage at a particularly vulnerable moment when the marriage is hard and it's exploiting them because it's creating an opportunity for them to do something not great, right? In that moment, right? So that's just one example of somebody that has created something, but it's not just in the business sector. It might be easy for us to imagine examples in the business sector, like really bad examples, but it's in the nonprofit sector too. And that's what we need to remember is that this is not that all businesses are bad, all businesses are exploitative, and 
you know, nonprofits are all the good ones. You're, you're waiting for that point in my presentation when I say that. I'm not going to say that because it's not true. At least we don't believe that it's true. Um, and you may be familiar with this story, Three Cups of Tea, and uh, a book basically about somebody who um, uh, essentially made up a story and raised uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, over time saying of uh, this really great story of starting this nonprofit, this school to serve these uh, children who didn't have access to it and this, that, and the other. And it later turned out that the whole thing was a lie. It was, it was all made up. Um, John Krakauer wrote a book called Three Cups of Deceit that basically countered that with the research on, you know, really sharing that the nonprofit was kind of all, it was a house of cards. And uh, you've perhaps heard of books like When Helping Hurts or others that really kind of explain this idea that a lot of times our best intentions, even in a nonprofit, are, can be exploitative. And so uh, it's really important for us to remember, and we remember through <laughs> the, the conversation we just had in the main session on the fall, we actually start here. This is where all of us start as Christians. We start at exploitative. Um, Christians are not actually, <laughs> we all start at exploitative, uh, in the way that we work in the way that we go out into the world. So that's number one. Uh, number two is the next one that we would call the ethical. And I want to just share a little bit of my journey. When I was a college student, I was a part of a Christian business group. I was at a large, uh, public university. And so there was not Christian teaching in my classroom. And a number of my classmates were Christians and, uh, two of them decided, you know, let's start this Christian business group to talk about what it means to integrate our faith with business or faith and work. And so I got a lot of my way of working from that group. And we read books together. We had different Christian uh, leaders come in and speak to us on occasion. There were a lot of great people that we met through that. But the meta narrative that I took away from what it meant to be a Christian in the marketplace was this, be nice to people lead with integrity and values, give as much money, like make a lot of money, be excellent, make a lot of money and give that money away, right? You know, to missionaries, especially because uh, they're doing really good work and holy work. And so um, many of you are a part of CCO. So you know that this is not all that there is to it. These are not bad things. We should be nice and lead with integrity. We should give money away. We should do excellent or good work, but that's actually not all that there is to the story. So when I uh, graduated college, I was fortunate uh, enough to enter into a really good economy at the time. And I had a job opportunity right out of college to work here at the Great Spaceship in Minneapolis. Uh, this is uh, Best Buy's headquarters, actually, just, just south of Minneapolis and shortly a few few miles away from where I went to college. And uh, I went to work here and I took that way of working into this place. And a couple of years ago, I, I haven't worked there for quite a while now. Um, it's, it's actually a very good company to work for. I, I really enjoyed a lot of the people that I work with. But I had a personal flashback to a memory uh, when I was working there. I was about a year and a half into my work. I was doing good work and being rewarded for it, being recognized for it. And I was on my way toward getting promoted to become a buyer of the flash drive category. And um, I remember a specific negotiation with a vendor and they basically said, I said, here's the price that I think we need to put you on the front page of the ad in an upcoming advertisement. And they said, uh, we can't do that price. That's too low. And I said, you have to do that price. And I was negotiating because I knew 
that my competitors, Staples and Office Max and Office Depot and Walmart and everybody else was going to put a flash drive on the front cover of the ad that week because it was back to school time frame. And that's what you do at least 10 years ago, 20 years ago, however long it was. <laughs> we used to put flash drives on the front cover of the ad back to school because everybody needed a flash drive when you went to school. Um, now it's something different, right? But uh, so I was negotiating and I said, you have to be at this price when we put it on the front cover of the ad, because I am going to beat all my competitors because that's what we do. We're called Best Buy. So that's what we do. We, we, we are the best place to buy it from. And so I was embodying the ethos of the company. And they said, no, we can't do it. And I said, okay, if you can't do it, then I'm going to pull you and I'm going to put one of your competitors on the front cover. It was, I won't name the company, but there was, you know, five different companies that we sold the flash drives and they were supposed to be the one on the cover. I said, no, fine. You don't want to do it. I'm going to play hardball with you. I'm going to pull you from the ad and put somebody else on there. And uh, then they took a day to think about that and my threat to pull them. And essentially they came back and they said, okay, okay, okay. We can do it. We can do it. We'll figure it out. And um, so I won the negotiation using, you know, the tactics that you're taught in business school. And we, the, the ad came out a few weeks later, we won, we beat the competitors. Everybody said I did a great job. I was continuing to be applauded for my work. And what ended up happening is 10, 10 years later, I have a flashback to this moment. And the 10 years later, when I had the flashback was when I was talking with somebody about human trafficking and how much of human trafficking in our world today is actually, they, they, you know, they say there's like 20 plus million people in uh, slavery today in modern day slavery. And most of that slavery is, slavery is labor uh, slavery that people are enslaved through some form of labor exploitation. And uh, what happens is basically the people at the bottom, the people who actually make the products in the factories are the ones who can't negotiate for themselves. They have no leverage. And so they are ultimately the ones who get exploited the most in these situations. And as I'm talking with somebody and learning about human trafficking and modern day slavery, I have a flashback to that negotiation and I just thought to myself, who got exploited? Who got crushed because I won? And it, it was just one of the most sobering moments of my uh, kind of adult work life. Remember, I was trained in a Christian business organization. Like I was part of the, the Christian business club at my university. I was on the leadership team. I was you know, inviting the speakers to come in and leading the Bible study on, you know, how we should be as Christians in the marketplace. But nobody ever taught me to think about the deeper things, like where are the products and services that we're making and contributing to making with our work? Where are they made? Who's making them? What are the conditions under which they're, how are they being treated as they're making them? Right? So, that was my sobering moment where I realized that I wasn't, I thought I was being a good Christian. I was actually being, probably being exploitative. And now the caveat that I want to add to that story is that we live in a really complicated world. Everything that we create lives between that fall and redemption because we're in the already, but not yet. And so nothing that we make can actually perfectly be redemptive or restorative. God's work is to restore 
But my point is that we all have a responsibility to do the best that we can to bend toward the restorative work that we could be a part of in the world and be conscious of ways that we might be exploitative in uh, our work. So uh, that's the thing is like, remember, we can't be perfect. We can't restore everything, but we should do as much as we can to understand what could be the temptation or what the natural way that exploitation might happen. Um, and when we start looking at it from that way, we actually realize there's kind of exploitation all around us. It's actually the default of the world uh, and the marketplace that we all are, are swimming in those waters. And so we, we do have to think differently about what we're making. Okay. So the next sphere, that's the exploitative. The next sphere is the ethical this, the ethical, their narrative is doing the right thing, integrity, having fairness, creating value for the common good. This is do no harm. This is I win and you win. We both win situations. So this, the meta narrative here is self-centeredness as a system of moral pride, right? Because we can look at the ex, the ethical often looks at the exploitative and says, well, that's not the right way to do it. That's bad. The exploitative is bad. So we are better. We are better. We are the ethical people. Um, and uh, the one thing I want to double click on there, it's important that we're careful with it. We're careful with that term exploitative because uh, that word can be weaponized and we can actually use that exploitative term to sort of make ourselves seem like better people, right? This is that self-centeredness as a system of moral pride that says, well, at least I'm not doing that, right? At least I'm not like that example that John shared earlier, Um <laughs> So it's really easy for us to have that self-centeredness as a system of moral pride when we start to move beyond that. And so we just need to be careful and continue to be humble in that process. Um, the other thing that I'll say is that um, this is similar to my example, kind of building off my example of working at a large consumer electronics company, is that ethical is not enough in a broken world with broken systems, Right. The, the reality is, is that I was negotiating inside of a broken world that there were a lot of broken systems that went into that. Now, if I were to go back to my example, could I actually have changed the entire supply chain and changed everything? No, I didn't have that amount of agency, but I could have been more thoughtful in my negotiation. Right. I could have actually asked the vendor, hey, what where do the where does the cost get cut? If I make you cut this cost, an extra $5 per unit, where does that cost get cut? And uh, actually open up a conversation around that. And just to say, well, maybe the deal is, is that we shouldn't, we shouldn't, I don't need to win on that ad because um, you know what? That's really bad for a lot of people, right? It's good for me, but it's bad for a lot of other people. So um, now uh, you may be thinking, what's, what else is there, Right. So a lot of the vision that you heard me share that I got in college was around the ethical, be a good person, try to be fair, have high integrity, high values. But there's actually something beyond that. And we would call that the redemptive. And the redemptive is other centered acts of love that we would define as creative restoration through sacrifice, creative restoration through sacrifice. And uh, this, the redemptive is a pursuit. It's not a destination. That's the thing that I'll say here. And that's kind of why we share it as this graph of like, we're moving toward the redemptive and we're joining God and his big redemptive plan in the world, as opposed to we are able to redeem, we are able to make ourselves redemptive. No, God redeems 
God helps us and invites us to join him in his renewal projects in the world. And that's what we can do through entrepreneurship. So redemptive is following the pattern of creative restoration through sacrifice in our life and our work. Um, now, I'm just going to really quickly layer this frame on three dimensions of work. Um, and then I'll share a couple of examples and then we'll do some Q&A. So um, the three dimensions of work, leadership intent, strategic vision, and operating model. These are three dimensions of every organization, whether it's a nonprofit, a social enterprise, or a, a business all uh, sort of organizations have these three dimensions. So the first is strategic vision. This is what the organization does in the world. The product services programs, the brands and the narratives. Remember I talked about those billboards in Times Squares and, and what are the narratives that they're actually telling us? Uh, the, as well as the spaces and the experiences that we create through what we make. Um, that is the strategic vision. What does the organization do in the world? How does it shape the culture? How does it shape the society that we're going to inhabit? The second is the operating model. This is how the organization makes it happen, right? How do we actually operationalize that strategic vision and create an organization? This is the culture of the organization, the people development. Uh, this is partnerships, financial capital, and equity. How do we treat that? How do we treat our employees and our people um, that all kind of goes in there. How do we do sales, customer service? What does our supply chain look like? Those are all part of the operating model. Um, and the final is leadership intent. And this is who we are becoming as we lead. Uh, you can imagine, and perhaps you've been a part of something, a leadership event before that's kind of said, you know, ultimately what we make and how we do it comes from who we actually are. Uh, in our heart of hearts, who we actually are is the thing, is the sort of soil in which uh, we have the ability to cultivate and uh, change and direct uh, who we are becoming, our own discipleship and our own journey as individuals. And that actually helps us express ourselves in the world through what we make and how we go about making it. So this is identity and purpose, our ambition. What do we do with ambition? our imagination, uh, what do we do with our practices, what are our motivations for what we're doing, and how do those things manifest themselves in the work world. So uh, when we take those three ways to work and we layer them on to uh, the three aspects of an organization, we get the redemptive frame. And the redemptive frame summarized and the exploitative, the exploitative will often use people and leverage culture as they live for themselves. So the ex exploitative kind of way of working is I live for myself. It doesn't really matter what the products and services that I make do in the world, who they affect and what the implications are. I'm just doing things in the world. And uh, if my product, you know, if somebody uses it for ill, it's on them, right? Uh, and I'm going to use people in the process. The ethical narrative is I'm going to improve myself and I'm going to make the world a better place, right? I'm going to advance culture and respect people. I'm going to try to be a good person and really do my best to respect people along the journey. Uh, but ultimately, we feel that the call for Christians who are following Jesus is not to actually improve ourselves, but the invitation of Jesus is to not just improve ourselves so we can make the better the world a better place. The Jesus invitation is actually an invitation of dying to self, and that's the discipleship journey. And as we die to self and die to our own ambition, the beautiful part of the gospel narrative is that our ambition and our work can actually be rebirthed and reborn 
in a different story and a different narrative and can create new things in the world. Uh, so we we join God a renewing culture and we along the way operationalize that through blessing people. So that's the redemptive frame summarized. I'll share uh, uh, that we in our work at Praxis we've had the just extraordinary opportunity through uh, accelerator programs and our venture lab to work with over 200 of these entrepreneurs pursuing this redemptive entrepreneurship vision vision all over the world. Um, They're doing it in all sectors. So I often say that because some of you might be passionate about uh, discipleship or fashion or freedom or genomics or homelessness. You can use entrepreneurship and redemptive entrepreneurship to join God in that that work that he's doing to restore things in the world. Uh, This right here is Jessica Kim. Jessica um, uh, has a wonderful story. I can't summarize the whole thing, but hopefully you get a chance someday to really hear from her. She's got a number of talks out in the world on the internets that you can hear. But uh, Jessica, when she was a senior in college, uh, won a startup competition and got uh, a lot of money to go start her first. Hey, John, I think we I've, I've lost your audio. Okay. Is it back? Yes. Okay. Thanks. But I've lost it again. (laughs) Okay. How's this? Okay. Sorry about that. I'm not sure what's going on with the mic. Um, so Jessica started a company out of college. She uh, then went and worked for a large corporation for a number of years, started another company later. She was actually in the process of uh, starting her third company and uh, her mother actually got sick and she became a caregiver for her mom. And in the process, she saw that there are millions of people uh, in our country and really around the whole world who unintentionally become caregivers for uh, family or friends who are uh, suffering. And she realized that there, there are no products or services that really uh, help those people. The main tool that they use is Google. <laughs> they just Google, how do I become a good caregiver? Or so-and-so has such and such a symptom. And anybody who's ever felt a tinge of sickness and tried to Google your symptom, you know exactly what that is like. It's like panic and fear because you all of a sudden are like have every disease imaginable, right? And so Jessica saw that problem and she thought, well, how can we actually be uh, her next venture? Not just like starting another you know, tech startup or whatever, but how can I start a tech startup that actually helps uh, people who are caregivers. It's an unseen people group that need a lot of help to do what they're called to do uh, in the world. And uh, so she started this thing called Ionicare, and it's really serving those people in beautiful ways. This here is Alexander McLean. Alexander um, uh, was becoming a lawyer in uh, the UK and graduated from a pretty prominent school. And had an opportunity to kind of, you know, become a go go the firm route and work at a, a great law firm, or have an opportunity to, you know, do something else. A lot of different things in the world when you have a law degree from a great uh, institution. And instead, he decided to use his uh, skills and his power to actually start the first ever law school inside of a prison. 
in uh, Kenya. And he did that after going and serving in that prison and finding that there were uh, hundreds and thousands of people there who had never, uh, not even talking about a fair trial, they had never even gotten a trial period. Some people were, the system was so kind of backed up and backlogged that um, they just were in prison awaiting a trial, many of them, and didn't know how to actually defend themselves. And of course, they didn't have a lawyer, nor could they afford one. And one of the beautiful things uh, about Alexander and what he did here was he was a lawyer, but he saw a problem. And because he was a lawyer, he saw a problem that had to do with the justice system. And instead of simply deploying his legal skill set as a lawyer, he actually said, no, God has called me to be innovative and creative. And so if I just take on cases, I'm so limited in how many cases I could take on. But as he got to know people, he realized that they had dignity, they were smart, they just had never had access to the same kind of things that he had had access to. And so Alexander said, instead of me just trying to take on as many cases as I can, why don't I actually create a, a, a way for them to learn so that they can defend themselves or they can become lawyers and defend their fellow prisoners who they've become friends with while they're awaiting trials? Um, and so, uh, yeah, he created this organization called Justice Defenders. 60 Minutes actually just did a profile on him that they aired a couple of weeks ago. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. I'd encourage you to do it. And we had a chance to work with Alexander through our nonprofit accelerator. Uh, the first example, Jessica, she, she does a business. And that's one of the things, uh, joys of our work at Praxis. We work with both businesses and nonprofits because we think uh, both of them are needed in the world to be a part of what God is doing. And uh, ultimately, legal structure is a strategy question. How do I carry out the mission of the organization uh, most effectively? And sometimes it's a nonprofit, sometimes it's a business. So a uh, couple of stories, uh, big framework, big idea, and a couple of stories uh, for you to, to chew on there. Let's, uh, let's chat a little bit about that. What are some of the questions that you all have as you uh, think about um, uh, yeah, as you think about your own vocation and your calling, and, and uh, many of you are probably entrepreneurs or maybe want to be. So what, what questions came up for you? What are some of your reactions? Let's, let's have a little chat here. And uh, yeah, feel free if you want to put your video on and uh, just join us and tell us who you are and where you're joining us from. It's fun to get to know one another as we do these. So 